every time I start to film this podcast, my freaking landscape guys decide to build a house on my driveway. So welcome to another edition of MC Unpacked. What's up, everyone? My name is Kerry Robinson. I'm the pastor or the one of the pastors of the Movement Church in Orange County, California, which is nestled right between LA and San Diego, for those of you that don't know. For those of you that are part of our church, man, what's up, family? It is so good to have you here. This podcast is specifically designed for friends and family of the Movement Church. We want to take extra time to unpack theology, to unpack spirituality, to unpack what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to unpack things that we're preaching about. And man, I'm just so glad that you tuned in. So here's what I want to ask you. Do me a favor. And I know you're already sad. You're bummed. You're, you're, you're contemplating uh, stopping watching because my beautiful wife, Megan, is not with me, but she said she doesn't love you. No, she said, I'm so bummed I can't be here today. She'll be back with me soon, I promise. But here's what I want to ask you. Before we dive into today's content, do me a favor, just go ahead and hit subscribe, like it, and do 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 one more favor for me and share what you're watching right now. And uh, let, let somebody know, hey, this this might be for you. This guy is okay, his wife is much better. It's moderately exceptional, it's moderately acceptable. If you somewhat, if you like if it's two stars and above, then share it with somebody right now. But listen, today we are talking about some things that are challenging for some and exciting for others. We're talking about Christianity and alcohol. Now, this podcast right now, I think this is our sixth episode, and what we are doing is unpacking portions of our movement manifesto. So we have millions upon millions of people visit our church every Sunday. Millions. Our church is so much bigger than your church, it's overwhelming. So when all these people are visiting our church, we wanted to figure out how do we how do we help them know who we are in a small amount of time? Because people are coming from different walks of life, different faith backgrounds different socioeconomic status. I mean, there's so many nuances that go into what is happening in somebody before they show up at church. So we wrote a, a movement manifesto and other things called the paradox of terms. And, and our hope and our heart was that people could get a scratch and sniff, maybe a little taste of our theology of who we are and behind the scenes, what we live for, what we die for, um, and, and all the kind of the in-between in maybe just a couple of minutes. So we thought we'd take over the next few episodes and unpack, un, unpack, unpack the uh, paradox of terms. So we, we hand out a little booklet like this to people who attend our church, and, and we have different paradoxes of terms that just kind of lightly touch on the theology that we have behind different uh, uh, beliefs and philosophies within what we, who we are as a church and, and what we do. So I want to read one to you today, and then we're going to unpack this the best we possibly can. And here is this paradox of terms. It says this, at the Movement Church, we're committed to a healthy body and soul, but also great food. Come on, somebody. How many of you love a great meal? Raise your hand. Yes, do me a favor. Go ahead and slap your neighbor and say, I do too love some great food. Man, everything possibly wrong is happening right now. There is somebody on the other side of my garage door that I think is demolishing. There's like a demolition. There's a, they're demolishing a car. Uh, my ring is going off on my phone for somebody at my front door. Uh, our producer, Shayna, is laughing at me, not with me, at me. It is a, it's a, it's a distraction of epic proportion. Let's get back into this. 
<laughs> we're committed to a healthy body and soul, but also great food. Whoever stop, whoever said stop living to eat and start eating to live obviously never had a great burger. That being said, Paul encouraged all things in moderation and to be owned by nothing. So eat well, but with restraint. Work out and Sabbath hard. Oh, and enjoy a good beer unless you shouldn't or feel the conviction not to. And then don't. Just don't let it master your life. So what we wanted to do is take a few moments today and unpack the biblical perspective for Christians and alcohol. What does the Bible say about alcohol? What does it have to do with us? And is it inherently evil? Is it something that we should completely abstain from? Should we go buck wild, crazy, and party 24-7? Uh, what, what does the scripture have to say? And let me tell you why I, I want you to I want to talk about this. Let me tell you why I think it's important that you know and have a greater understanding of this because you, you need to know what the Word of God says. You need to know what the Bible says about everything in your life, specifically decisions that you're making. And, and if you're part of our church community, you need to know where we stand. Like That's important. Uh, you need to know what our thoughts are on these things. Um, and, and, and if you have a, a personal conviction regarding alcohol, you need to know why. And if you have a personal conviction uh, where it's not a problem to drink alcohol, you need, you need to know why. You actually need to have the understanding. And uh, so let me just pause and, and tell you kind of what our philosophy is and what our, our kind of standard, if you will, at the church. Um, uh, more importantly, my personal beliefs. So uh, both my wife and I, um, we enjoy great wine, not, not cheap two-buck chuck, not boxed wine, not a big jug of, of a bottle of wine from Costco, but like good wine. And, and I also really enjoy like good beer. It's a problem. It adds like inches to the waistline so quickly. And I, I also enjoy cocktails, like the like good cocktails. And so I think it's important that you know that. And what I want to do is take a few minutes and I want to break down what the scripture says in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want to break down some church history with regards to alcohol and, and how the church has viewed alcohol over the last 2,000 years. And then I want to unpack some of the challenges and problems of that. I want to unpack a little more of our philosophy and maybe just encouragement to you. But uh, I do want you to know that this is, is not a podcast to try to convince you that if you don't drink that you need to start drinking, nor is this a podcast to encourage you to continue an unhealthy use of alcohol. I just want you to know what the Word of God says. I think that it's important. So let's talk about that right now. What does the Bible say about alcohol? Well, generally speaking, in the Old Testament, it's pretty lenient towards alcohol uh, on, on a general basis. In fact, um, all over and over and over again in Scripture, alcohol is considered a symbol of joy. Uh, we see this in Psalm uh, chapter 4, verse 7, Psalm 104, 15, Ecclesiastes 10, 19. But also in the Old Testament, it's a symbol of God's joy. In fact, he called his people, you and me, they're called the vineyard of the Lord. And he delights in his children. He delights in his people. So when he associates us, us, associates us with a vineyard, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But the Old Testament also talks about how when alcohol is abused, there are consequences that accompany it. There are two chief stories in the Old Testament. One is of Noah, who after the flood, he gets off the ark, he plants a vineyard, and he just gets stinking hammered. He's toasted. And, 
and this whole scenario emerges where he's laying naked and it's kind of humiliating and there's this whole scenario where his sons cover him up but there's also a story in the old testament of a man named Lot and the consequences of his drunkenness, which actually his daughters convinced him and, and tricked him into getting drunk. And then they slept with him and to, to produce children. I mean, we're talking like there's major consequences that come specifically from the abuse of alcohol, specifically for drunkenness. In fact, the Old Testament portrays drunk, drunkards as fools over and over and over again. But we also see in the Old Testament where there are times where we should abstain from alcohol, but it was always for specific tasks. We, we, we see in the Old Testament that priests were instructed to abstain from alcohol while working in the ministry. In other words, like, like this is a Red Bull, you know, like it's saying while you're preaching, while you're ministering, while you're, to, to not go and, and be drunk while you're ministering, to not be drinking while you're ministering. And, and we understand that. Nazarites were instructed to take a vow of separation and and they wouldn't drink during their vow. Samson's mom, uh, while she was pregnant, was instructed not to drink, which is generally a good rule of thumb. Uh, Daniel, while he was in exile, did not drink. And there are times where the scriptures tell kings and princes not to drink while ruling, which makes sense. There are times where it's acceptable, times unacceptable. For instance, to, to not drink and drive, that's an unacceptable time. That would be an abuse of alcohol. And the, new, the Old Testament talks about some of the negative aspects of alcohol. Proverbs 20 says that wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23 says this in verses 29 through 30, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Who has tarry long? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Proverbs 4 says this, do not enter the path of the wicked for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. So we see the negative aspects of alcohol in the Old Testament. But Proverbs also shows positive aspects to alcohol. <laughs> Somebody's literally like WWE slamming their body against my garage door. Can you all hear that? It's like, a, it's like a giant raccoon is trying to eat us. Let us continue. The positive aspects of, of alcohol found in the same book, Proverbs. Chapter 3, verse 9 to 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits. Look at this. So when we honor God with our tithe, with returning 10%, and all of our produce, the, our income. Look at this. The, it says this, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So it's associating wine with the blessings of the Lord. Proverbs 9, 1, 5, and 6 says this, wisdom has built her house and she has hewn her seven pillars. Come eat of my bread and drink of my wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Proverbs 31 says that, that the famous 30 Proverbs woman, the 30, Proverbs 31 woman says that she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. I told my wife that. She said, I knew I was, she said, I identify as Italian. I need to move to Italy and start a vineyard. I said, as long as I can go with you, we're good, baby. <laughs> anyway, so we see the negative and the positive aspects of wine found in the Old Testament. Under the law, we know that there are blessings and cursings that had to do with whether or not we were obedient or disobedient to what the scripture says. 
And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the abundance of wine is associated with the blessings of being obedient to the covenant, being obedient to God's word. Whereas a lack of wine was often correlated with the curses of being disobedient towards God. So we definitely see the consequences and the problems of the abuse of alcohol, but we also see that clearly, according to the Old Testament, wine is associated with the blessing. We look at the New Testament, we see like what, what's Jesus' assessment of alcohol? Well, in, in almost every instant, he was the most lenient towards alcohol. In John 2, the very first miracle that the Son of Man, the Son of God performs, when he's the very first miracle he does on this earth to place him, like he's, he's establishing his ministry, the very first miracle that he did, he turned six three-foot jars of water into wine. It would be roughly 180 gallons of wine. This is Jesus' first miracle. If we have a church party, like a, maybe it's a dream team party, or we have a church party, if Jesus showed up, he would bring the wine. Like literally, that, that's who Jesus was. He refers to himself as the true vine, and God the Father as the vine dresser. So again, he's using the illustration of vineyards here. And he, he's referring to, him, to himself as a true vine. In other words, that's a good thing. He's not saying this is a negative thing. He's saying there's a positive aspect to what this is. In the Last Supper, Jesus said, this is my last time to drink until I'm in the new kingdom. And he sits down with his closest friends and they celebrate the Lord's Supper over a glass of wine. Then the New Testament also has similar negative assessments of drunkenness, just like the Old Testament. We see this in Matthew 24, Luke 12, 1 Corinthians 5 and 15, 1 Peter 4, Revelation 14, Revelation 7, 6 and 18. Pardon me, I just burped because of my Red Bull. I promise I've not been drinking wine or beer or cocktails. It's just Red Bull. Cheers. I don't know why I said Red Bull. Maybe because I'm drinking Red Bull. <laughs> what the New Testament encourages us to do is live soberly. Live soberly. Now, somebody who talks about uh, the both the positive, but more importantly, the negative aspects of alcohol, the most in the New Testament is Paul. And he has some serious concerns with Paul. But you need to know that the majority of times that Paul is referring to the problems of alcohol abuse, it's always in reference with public drinking parties, public orgies, and public sex parties in the ancient world. So Paul's concern is that people were pursuing sex and money and power and alcohol and greed. And he's talking about how we have gotten first principles uh, reversed. In other words, we started pursuing power and money and sex and greed and alcohol and pleasure, and we've forgotten to pursue a relationship with Jesus. They had flipped their priorities. So Paul's coming back and saying, hey, what is it that you're pursuing? What is the priority in your life? What is it that you are choosing to place above everything else? And so Paul is coming in and he's going, hey, but we do not condone drunkenness. There's nothing in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament that condones drunkenness. But what Paul is doing is he's tying drunkenness to sexual immorality, which we get that. I mean, why do people go to bars, get hammered, 
They try to get, they try to hook up. They try to hook up with somebody at the bar, meet somebody new. Like they, there's an app, you and I, it's not difficult for us to connect the dots between drunkenness and sexual immorality. But he's also saying we got to make sure that we're pursuing first principles. He's got, he's saying, hey, are, are you living your life in moderation? Paul, Paul is commanding leaders in the church as well to abstain from drunkenness. Elders and, and their wives, deacons, older men and older women. Uh, and, and, but we see this prohibition of overindulgence. So he's saying you need to abstain from overindulgence, but not just of alcohol. He's also talking about gluttony. Like we don't get up and preach sermons about calorie intake. And I mean, if you think about it, the majority of deaths that happen in America are related to obesity and weight issues. And we don't get on the stage and talk about that very often. But when Paul addresses the issues with alcohol, it's the same as addressing the issues of gluttony, the issues with slothfulness, the issues with greed and pursuing money over the, the principle, the fact that I want to pursue my relationship with Jesus. But can I just tell you that because abuse of alcohol exists, it does not nullify the proper use. You see, Paul, he, he does not say don't eat. He says don't be gluttons. Paul doesn't say don't make wealth. He says don't make wealth your first priority. So when Paul says do not be drunk with wine, he doesn't mean do not drink wine. So here's the clear thing that we can take from Scripture is the Scripture teaches moderation in the pursuit of power, money, and pleasure. Let me say that again. The scripture teaches moderation in the pursuit of power, money, and pleasure. There's nowhere that the scripture clearly says you must abstain from alcohol, even for leaders, with the exception of certain situations, which we've already talked about. A judge while he's judging, a priest while he's ministering. Jesus on the cross denied the bitter wine. He said this is not the time for that. So we at the Movement Church... We teach liberty in all things the scripture gives us liberty for, but to live our life in moderation and to make sure that we're pursuing first principles first. So let's talk about this. That's the New Testament, the Old Testament. Let's take a moment and talk about church history. So when you look at why is it that in today's day and age, especially in America and in some third world countries, not primarily Europe, but third world countries, why is there a faux pas with Christianity and alcohol? Why is there a kind of a challenger? And let me just tell you, for me, I grew up in an environment like that. I, I've told my story quite often. I grew up in a home that's kind of like uh, the where the father from Footloose. That's kind of what my dad was like. Much better looking than that dude. But I couldn't drink, drink couldn't smoke, couldn't listen to music unless it was Christian music. Um, not worship music, like Christian music. People wrote songs about life that were centered around Christ, and it was good but not great. Can I say that? Good but not great. But that was all we could listen to. I grew up in youth ministries, and we would bring our CDs, and we would nail them to a cross, surrendering the, the, the vile debauchery of our flesh to Jesus. Obviously, not have sex before marriage. We, we abstain from sex before marriage. We, listen, we don't cuss. We don't smoke. There's all these things we don't do. Listen, I've told you this story before. I was dating Megan. She was a senior in high school, and she had a senior prom, and I couldn't go to it. We, we, I couldn't go. You know why? Because there was dancing, and, and I wasn't allowed to dance. So I grew up in an environment like this, and, and part of the environment that I grew up in, it, it wouldn't be weird to think that the hottest part of hell was reserved for Christians who would smoke and drink and cuss. And so it, how do we get there 
from the fact that Jesus, he, he said, I, I, I'm going to drink with my friends at the Last Supper because it's the last time I'm going to drink before I get to the, my new kingdom. How do we get from there? Jesus, who was accused at one point of being a drunkard because he would drink in public. He was never drunk. We know that because he never sinned. And the Bible would say that being drunk is a sin. And he never, he never sinned. But he was accused of being a drunkard because he drank in public. Because when he was with his friends, he was consuming alcohol. We, all of the Old Testament festivals throughout scriptures all uh, contain parties where people are consuming wine and strong drink. So how do we get from there in the Old and New Testament to now that there's this faux pas, this weird tension between Christians and drinking? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Let me give you kind of some insight. So uh, for the first 1,800 years of the church, the concepts of Christian not Christians not drinking did not exist. I know that's like a quadruple negative. In other words, for the first 1,800 years of the church, Christians and drinking was absolutely normal. It was a regular occurrence. It would happen in every meal and at every celebration and every festival. And in the medieval times, monks would brew beer and make wine to support the monastery. In fact, truthfully, this, this is not a stretch. Truthfully, you could say that breweries and wineries helped keep the transcribing of the Bible possible during the medieval times, which means the Bible that we have today that's been transcribed from one person to the next was made possible through the funding of breweries and vineyards. Thomas Aquinas, one of the early church fathers, he wrote that his fix for depression was a hot bath and a couple glasses of wine. That sounds like my kind of dude right there. Calvin. Now, Calvin, he, he wrote some of the major tenets of our faith. Some of you watching might be Calvinist. Calvin wrote, It is permissible to use wine not only for necessity, but to make us merry. In other words, it's okay to enjoy, to take the edge off with some alcohol. Now, again, we're going to get to the problems and the pains and the issues of alcohol. Never are we allowed to be drunk. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. And all throughout Scripture, it, it challenges and chastens us to, to drink in moderation. But how do we get from the early church fathers that this is normal to now it's a little bit weird? Look at this. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. If not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther, if you are watching and you are a Christian and you do not attend a Catholic church, you are in the, the church heritage of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a part of the Catholic Church up until the early 1500s, and then he just started to see some of the issues and the, the scandal and the, this, the, the hypocrisy in the Catholic Church and realized that at that time, the Catholic Church was prohibiting Christians and followers of Jesus from actually reading the Scripture because they were using the Scripture to manipulate the followers. So he very boldly and courageously wrote his 95 thesis, which was 95 points of where the Catholic Church got it wrong and how the Bible says that we are the priesthood of all believers and that we can read the Scripture and understand and that we are saved through grace, not through the church. We are saved by faith. And he wrote this courageously and boldly and he nailed it to the door of a chapel and it started the, the Protestant Reformation. The Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation split. So if you grew up 
Methodist, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Southern Baptist, non-denominational, Bible church, Calvary church, Vineyard church, any of these types of churches, anything that is not Catholic, but you're a follower of Jesus, you are a byproduct of Martin Luther. Wow, what a heritage, what an amazing man. He changed things for you and for me. And do you know that his wife was the owner of a brewery? Do you know that Martin Luther changed beer to this day? And I'm grateful for it. In those days, beer had more of an herbal and a like a botanical taste to it, more herby and, and earthy and planty. But the Roman Catholic Church knew this, and they put a taxation on those plants and herbs, but there were no taxes on hops. That's right. So Martin Luther got this idea. He was so frustrated with the Roman Catholic Church and tired of them getting money that he decided to make beer with hops because they didn't have to pay taxes. And as a result, the Protestants started drinking beer with hops in it. And as a result, the Germans, which is where Martin Luther is from, began to brew beer with hops on it. And that is why we have beer with the beautiful greatness of hops today because of Martin Luther, one of the early church fathers. So how did we get from that to where we are today? Some of you listening are having a hard time because you think I'm an advocate for going out tonight and just getting blasted. And if you hear me saying that, that is not what I'm saying. I'm just telling you that God has principles for us in Scripture. And for nearly 2,000 years, the church adhered to the same principles, but something shifted, and I want to tell you what it was. So get to the Americas, the 1800s, obviously later into the Americas, but it changed everything in the wild, wild west. See, in the UK, people would go to a pub or to a public house and drink, and it was community, and it was safe, and you'd bring your family there. But you get to America, the wild, wild west, and we start saloons. But saloons were full and rampant with sexuality and prostitution. There was violence and debauchery, and that's the type of crowd that saloons would gather. And so men would now go to their saloons, and, and women, wives, were getting frustrated by it. They hated the crowd that it brought. They hated the environment that it created in the cities that they lived in, and they did not want their husbands to go. Well, fast forward a few years, and this temperance movement came from the Methodist church because they wanted to change America into a respectable country. So this movement was started by women against the debauchery of saloons. And that, over the course of years, they would protest and march and advocate against the, the debauchery and nastiness of what was happening in saloons. And finally, it led to the Volstead Act, which was, in, which was put in place a couple of years or a year after World War I, and this was the Prohibition Act. So in America, it was illegal to drink alcohol, and it all started because some Methodist women who were godly and had great intentions were tired of seeing the debauchery of the saloons. So it was illegal to drink. Well, you and I both know that, that whenever we tell somebody they can't do something, man, that is really difficult to actually stay on the straight and narrow. So speakeasies were created. And now people are going to a speakeasy and, and they're secretly sneaking into a place, but it's so under the radar, it's an illegal activity. So they're going in and they're getting drunk as fast as they possibly can and then heading home. And thousands upon thousands of people are dying because the alcohol was not healthy. They're getting hammered, alcohol poisoning, drunk driving, all kinds of craziness. Well, the years I, during this time in America, 
The Pentecostal movement had just been birthed about 10 or 15 years earlier. And the Pentecostal movement is a denomination, but more importantly, it's a movement of charismatic faith. This is a group of people who got together and believed that the Spirit of God wants to move in America, and they believed that the gifts of the Spirit were for today, and that people needed to experience the fullness of the gospel of Jesus, and revival broke out. The Pentecostal movement is still considered one of the fastest growing movements in the world today. The Catholic Church has been around for 1,700 years, and there's 2 billion Catholics. Well, the Pentecostal movement was launched in 1906, and to this day, there are about 780 million Pentecostals. So only 100 years or a little bit more, and it's this fast-growing movement, inspiring and influencing people, and many believe it's more influential than modern-day media because it is still blowing and going. Now, great movement. God was doing awesome things in and through the Pentecostal movement. But the people who started this movement, they did so by abstaining from everything. They said, we're not going to smoke. We're not going to drink. We're not going to cuss because their heart was whatever we have to do to be righteous and holy before God. And God showed up in a powerful way and a revival started. Well, as years passed and generations died, the, the heartbeat and the motive behind the initiation of this movement were lost. And the only residue that was left was a rules and a list of do's and don'ts. Here's, if you want to love Jesus, you can't do this, you can do this. In the Pentecostal movement, they, they didn't have TVs in their house. They, they didn't listen to music that wasn't Christian. They didn't go to dances. They didn't drink and in this same movement, the Volstead Act is birthed. Drinking is considered a faux pas. It's considered a sin. And this whole movement still has traces and residue to this day, nearly a hundred years later. All because people had great intentions. But this is not God's heart. So I say all that to say, you need to understand the biblical perspective, and you also need to understand church history related to alcohol. Now, let me just tell you, I know that there are enormous consequences to the abuse of alcohol. I know that alcohol is one of the most deadly and destructive drugs on the face of the planet. But I just gotta tell you, the negative causes and afflictions of alcohol does not erase the positive benefits of it. But let me just tell you this. Let's talk about some of the problems of a lack of, uh, that a lack of moderation present. Right now, one in 20 deaths worldwide occur, occur from harmful use of alcohol. One in 20 deaths. It's an estimated 257 million men and 46 million women suffer from an alcohol use disorder. Of all deaths attributed to alcohol, 28% were due to injuries, such as those from traffic crashes or self-harm or interpersonal violence. 21% due to digestive order, disorders, things that have arisen inside of your body because of the abuse of and the consumption of alcohol. 19% due to cardiovascular disease, and the remainder due to infectious disease, cancer, mental disorder, and other health conditions. There's no doubt about it. There are major problems attributed to and because of the abuse of alcohol. 
But that does not negate the fact that there is no biblical grounds for pure abstinence. So you have this information. You you understand now what the scripture says. You understand what church history shows us. But now you have a responsibility. You have to be led by personal conviction. This is what we would consider a Christian liberty because there's no clear there's no clear scripture that would say you cannot drink what we do know is biblically the word says that we cannot be drunk with wine strong drink or strong wine so the question is do you choose to abstain or to partake do you choose to say no to alcohol or to enjoy and biblically you have grounds for that on either side what you don't have permission to do is to force your convictions on someone else. In fact, I might add, if you are watching and you are completely against drinking, but judging Christians who are, that might be a worse sin than what you think of their consuming of alcohol. If you drink and are judging someone who chooses not to, you might be guilty of a worse sin than what you think they are guilty of. Your responsibility is to take care of your personal conviction and lead your family accordingly. This is our responsibility. This is our role. Listen to me, all within the confines of moderation. That's what Paul talked about. That's what the Old Testament talks about. That's what Jesus talked about within moderation. You might say, well, what about like, I don't want to cause my brother to stumble. What about Romans 14, where he talks about not causing my brother to stumble? Well, can I tell you that Romans 14 was not about abstaining from alcohol. It was about Jewish law. And when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, specifically in Romans 14, he was not talking about whether or not they should drink alcohol. He was saying, if you feel convicted to still adhere to Jewish law, then do so. And don't drink the wine. The reason they didn't drink the wine is because in the Roman times, they would the fermentation process included ox blood, which was not kosher. So that's why they didn't drink the wine. Some would also say, well, wine back then wasn't really fermented. Well, that's a myth. There, It's been completely busted over and over again. In fact, many would say that the wine that they drank might have even been more alcoholic than what we have today. But back to the topic of what I'm saying, what about causing my brother to stumble? When Paul wrote Romans 14, he wasn't addressing abstinence from alcohol. He was addressing people who were still adhering to Jewish law because they were struggling with being saved by grace and faith. And when Paul talks to the weaker individual, the person who he refers to as weaker is not the person who is drinking alcohol, but the one who's abstaining. Now, that being said, we need to be wise. We need to be smart about it. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I was playing golf with a great friend of mine who's a part of our church. And uh, he's been sober for, I want to say, 15 years. I, I might be getting the time frame wrong, but he's been sober for a long time. And we finished the round of golf, and me and my other buddy were like, man, let's get a burger at the clubhouse and a beer. It's a hot day. And, and I, I knew that my buddy, my other friend, had, had, had struggled with alcoholism. So I went out and I said, hey, I, I know you're about to leave, but we're going to stay and grab a burger and a beer if you want to join, but I don't want that to be a problem for you. And he looked at me and said, man, I'm so grateful for you asking. He said, I'm doing great. If I was in a weaker moment, I'd have to say no. And I said, if you were in a weaker moment, you told me, then I wouldn't drink a beer. And I think that's the key. And the beautiful thing is my friend who is 15 years sober, 
he sits down and he enjoys a burger and doesn't drink a beer. And me and my other buddies sat down and enjoyed a burger and we drank a beer. And that's the beauty of the way Christianity should be. And we should be willing to say, hey, if it's going to cause you a problem, then I'll abstain. And if it's going to cause you a problem, it's okay if you drink. We should be able to do both. Why? Because there's no scripture that says we must abstain from alcohol. What we do know is moderation, moderation, moderation. And there's no biblical grounds for being drunk. So if you feel so led to abstain from drinking, then don't drink. And if you feel so led to drink, then do so in moderation. But no matter what, let's all make sure we're eating some good food. Can I get an amen? Man, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe and like and share. We'll see you next time on another edition of MC Unpacked.